Good evening. This is Cinema 60. That's a lot of women there. Beautiful, classy, and guts. Hard enough to kill you and soft enough to change you. Reminds me of another, Maria. Yours. Amigo. Don't con me. She's going back. If I have to do it alone, she's going back. It's just what I wanted to hear you say. So what else is on your mind besides 100-proof women, 90-proof whiskey, and 14-carat gold? Amigo. You just wrote my epitaph. Hi, Jenna. We've got a special guest with us today. Hi, Bart. Let's talk about him. <laughs> His name is Paul Bishop, and he's he's had a long and storied career, but he's here with us tonight mainly because he has a podcast called the Six Gun Justice Podcast. That's at sixgunjustice.com, and he knows a lot about Westerns, and we're going to talk Westerns tonight. He's chosen a 60s Western that he wants to talk about, The Professionals, so uh, after we get to know Paul a little bit, we're going to talk about that, but thanks for coming on, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. We're, uh, we're big Westerns fans ourselves here. We've done, I don't know, I guess we've done a couple of uh, Western-centric episodes on the show so far. Clint Eastwood was an early one. We did all his 60s movies, which were mostly Westerns, and more recently we did an episode called Eyeliner Westerns, which was uh, female-led Westerns. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Cat Ballou, definitely the most famous of the of the movies we talked about. Well, but we, we just did an episode on uh, a noir Western. And, of course, some of those are big feminist westerns with Joan Crawford and Barbara Stanwyck, uh, you know, doing their best to dominate every man that's on the screen with them. So yeah. <laughs> those could be called eyeliner westerns. I love noir westerns. I wish there were more. I, I don't know. Maybe if you have one in the 60s that you can recommend. But otherwise, like, you know, Blood on the Moon, is, that's a great oh, one. Yeah. Station West. Absolutely. You know, I think that the early ones from the 50s and the 60s were the best. The problem with noir is there are a lot of people who think they know what it is, but it isn't. And so to, to actually get something that's noir and not just melodrama, that's one of the things that we talk about. Because my partner Rich on the show, he talks about the idiot plots of some noir movies where they're not making decisions just because they're forced to. They're just making stupid decisions. And at any time, they could walk away. But you take a movie like Double Indemnity or The Postman Only Rings Twice, the classic noirs, they're movies about desperate people making desperate choices who are caught up in this whirlwind that they just can't get out of. It's not like they can just walk away and wash their hands of it. Mm. So that's one of the things that, that we bring out with some of the noir westerns that you know people look at. Something like Winchester 73 with James Stewart that's is probably... Movie. Yeah, it's probably the classic noir western, and it's the classic Jimmy Stewart at his worst, which means at his best, <laughs> playing a, a terrible character to a certain extent. Yeah, all of those man westerns that uh, that he did with Jimmy Stewart in the 50s are terrific. I, um, and Jimmy Stewart is, you know, he's a creep in all of them, and, and he does such a good job with that character, so against type. It, it took me a long time to... Uh, come to Jimmy Stewart in Westerns because I just 
disliked It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> and I just thought he was so goofy in that. And it just, you know, so I couldn't see him in a Western. But then I actually did catch, you know, uh, Winchester 73. And that led me to some other ones. And I went, wow, this guy's really good. Yeah, they're they're dark. I, I, I love those those dark Westerns of the 50s. I mean, I, I shouldn't be telling you about the history of Westerns and, and how they went in uh, in the movies, but uh, it's it's my sense that the 40s were kind of, uh, you know, Westerns were not quite uh, so popular as a, uh, as a film subject. Well, actually, they, they were. But the problem was that in the 40s, we had all of our military coming back from the horrors of World War II. And the traditional Westerns were not providing them with the entertainment that suited the restlessness that they were feeling and the displacement that they were feeling. And that's what led to the rise of the noir Western. But the noir Western didn't replace the standard Western. They kind of lived in parallel universes because there were still a lot of people out there that liked the white hats and the, and, and the black hats. And this whole thing with gray hats had them baffled. <laughs> so, you know, Westerns are something that has survived the death knell over and over and over again. Oh, Westerns are dead. Oh, wait, we've just had two big blockbuster movies released this year. Oh, Westerns are dead. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it does keep coming back, you know, decade after decade. There's, I mean, they've definitely slowed down making Westerns, but uh, but it's never really gone away. And, and this year, they've had... I mean, Wolfpack Publishing, who I'm the acquisitions editor for, we published 50 Westerns this year. Wow. And I can name at least another 100 Westerns that were published during the course of this year. So there's a thriving market out there, even though it's a invisible market. Trying to track down the fans who are buying these books is really difficult. But we've done that with the Six Gun Justice podcast. We've reached a surprisingly number of people uh, to the point where, you know, we did almost 3,000 downloads last year, and that just kind of blew our socks off. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, I, I always think of Westerns seem to sort of have overlapped with space movies and ship movies, and that sort of, mm. you, you end up seeing the same types of characters in the same types of situations. And so even when, you know, the setting isn't actually the West, it ends up sort of being, coming back to Westerns, like The Mandalorian being the most uh, obvious example that's, Absolutely. that's current. So. Yeah, The Magnificent Seven has been... Uh, you know, obviously, the Magnificent Seven was a remake of the Seven Samurai. Right. But then, the Magnificent Seven itself has been remade and remade and remade as space operas, and and it, that plot line has been put into every genre of film that's out there. Yeah, for sure. Between uh, the the Seven Samurai plot and the Rio Bravo plot, that accounts for. Uh, the basis for a lot of the westerns we see today and and so many different genre films i know in the mandalorian I, i've been watching that and and just recently watched the episode where he's hiding out on this planet and the and the uh, the villagers need some help for you know save save them from the raiders that are coming and i'm like, okay here's the here's their their magnificent here's the seven magnificent episode. seven plot yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what that was yeah there's just really something so mythic about that story that just keeps coming back over and over again, and, and people people always eat it up. They do. They do. The, the real question of the hour is, what is it about Westerns that draw you to them? Why do they stay with us? Why, <laughs> why do we still have Westerns? I think, for me, I was a huge crime fiction fan for years and years and years. I mean, I wrote crime fiction. I read and breathed crime fiction. And... 
it was from there, I was so satiated with it about five or six years ago that I just picked up a Western just for to cleanse my palate. And the next thing you know, my crime fiction's all gone by the west wayside, and I am now fully hooked and bought into Westerns all the way down the line. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and part of it is the this story of America and the West and the individualism. It, there's only seven plots that make up any Western, but it's the way those plots are uh, put on the page by the different authors that are doing them that make them so vital. You know, the... the loner who rides into town and cleans up the town has been done over and over and over again. But, you know, you look at Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood and it's done in a totally different way. And it just rivets you again. So I think there's this tie to the romance of the West that didn't really exist. And then there's this tie to our desire to be individuals and self-sustaining. I think it just appeals to us as Americans. Yeah, it is definitely our mythology. Not that it hasn't appealed to people all over the world, but uh, we, we get to we get to proudly claim it as our own. Yeah, same as jazz, right? right so jazz yeah. and the Western are probably the only true American art forms. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, um, Magnificent Seven was based on the Seven Samurai, and and it seems like there's a real tie between the uh, you know the samurai film and the western film. But uh, but westerns came first. You know, Kurosawa was was inspired by westerns, right? Right. But if if you look at the the Mandalorian again, it really is lone wolf and cub about a samurai roaming across Japan with a baby in a a baby carriage. Well, what's the Mandalorian uh, if not lone wolf and cub? I did not even make that connection, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. And the and the baby helps sometimes. Yes. Yeah. And is irritating sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> as babies are. Right. <laughs> so um, this is a podcast about 60s cinema. So I was hoping you could sort of take us up to the 60s uh, as far as Western films go. How do we get to the state of the Western in, in the 60s? It, it really starts with, unfortunately, the singing cowboys, the, the, the Gene Autrys and, and the Roy Rogers. And Westerns were looked at as kid stuff in the beginning. And it, it took a while for the adult Western to really turn up on television. And that began in the 60s on TV. We had films in the 40s and 50s that were traditional Westerns because Hollywood was based on Westerns. That's what Hollywood started with. They were inexpensive to make um, and uh, you know they just churned them out one right after the other. And you had the cowboy heroes from the silent films and you had Tom Mix and you had so many others. But again, these were Hollywood cowboys and there really wasn't a lot to the plots. And that began to change in the 40s with the noir westerns that we were talking about, when things became much more serious and not as cut and dried. But it was television that really began to drive this change to westerns. And in the 60s, at one point in the 60s, between the three major channels, NBC, ABC, and CBS, there were 39 westerns on every week. Wow. (laughs) Which is just an amazing number. You couldn't get away from them. Television shows like Gunsmoke, which came from radio and made the the jump to television, what they were about and what we've lost in Westerns uh, is they were really morality plays. 
every week with no easy answers. They were things that made their audience think about what would I do in that situation or how was that handled? Matt Dillon didn't always do everything right. He didn't always arrive in time to save the person from being hanged or killed or whatever. And then the writing begins to disintegrate over time or degrade over time because there's so much demand for product. There are still films, series that are just beloved today like Rawhide and, and Wagon Train and, and others that their early seasons were so much better than what came later when a lot of the writers turned to slapstick and more comedy and it just didn't fit. And that really led to the death of the Westerns towards the end of the 60s when the spy craze took over. James Bond, the man from UNCLE, and they were dominating the television at that time, and Westerns were thought of as old-fashioned. Yeah, I, when I was a kid in the early 70s, you know, I I was not interested in Westerns at all because they all, you know, it had already reached this stage where what you were seeing were just these sort of simple good guys versus bad guys stories, not, not the morality plays that you're talking about. And I was bored. It took me a long time before I actually, you know, it was probably somebody sat me down to watch The Searchers said no this is what westerns are and you know just dealing with so many issues that that i never thought could could be addressed and just story about a guy with a cowboy hat and uh, you know guns on his hips absolutely i mean with the searchers which is just it's the classic anti-john wayne film because john wayne is always such of this iconic hero but john wayne in the searchers he wants to find his missing niece not to rescue her but to kill her because as far as he's concerned, she's just another Indian now because of what's happened to her. I mean, that blows my mind that that got on the screen, that story. I mean, it's, it's really a powerful example of what the Western and what film can be. That's yeah. what, you know, that's always what I complain is missing in all of the comic book movies, which actually appears much more often in the actual comic books. But, you know, you get these sort of... G-rated, black and white, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, one punches the other kind of thing. <laughs> and it's like, man, I really miss that sort of gray area that to to have something to think about. And even if it's as simple as just showcasing the, the, the landscape versus the person, maybe the person has great intentions, but the, the landscape sure doesn't care. <laughs> no. And one of the things that's a through line for all of this, even when you take a character like John Wayne's character in The Searchers, even though you may not agree with the code of that character, they have a code and they live by that code. And I think that's what sets the Westerns apart from so many other films is this inherent code, whether it's a good guy, a bad guy or somebody in between, that they try to live by their own moral code, whatever that may be. And now you can argue about, well, is that moral code correct, incorrect? Where do you come down on this? Uh, is it only applicable in some areas and not others? And I think that's what we're faced with in the world today with a lot of the decisions that we're seeing made in politics and elsewhere is this version of what is true morality. Now, what you haven't talked about with me a little bit is that um, I spent 35 years with the LAPD. and. I'm a nationally recognized interrogator. It's what I do. I now go around the country teaching interrogation to law enforcement. And if I learned anything in 35 years of doing interrogations, it's that truth is a movable point. It's a matter of perspective, not a matter of fact. 
And that's the way morality is in so many of these films. It's a perspective, not a fact. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it's very true. And it's also very, it's very interesting to think about as well. It's the chicken and the egg scenario where you're like, is this because media tells us that it's only black and white and that's how, you know, we all expect it to be? Or is it just a lack of human communication and, and actually getting out there and, and living, a, experiencing a real life as it happens? Or it's kind of funny where we are at this, at this current stage to, to have this attitude. But of course, this is something that always ebbs and flows. I mean, the 1960s were certainly not a time where uh, it took till the end of the, the decade for people to start to realize that there's more nuance than we thought there was at the beginning of the decade. And then by that time, mm. everyone was so upset <laughs> with the other <laughs> side that we didn't want to talk about the nuances. We wanted to just get stuff done, you know, so you're right. You're absolutely right. And, you know, today we think, oh, this is the most divided the country's ever been. Well, if you think that, then you didn't live through the 60s because we were in the same position then. And, you know, if you look back at history, we we face this over and over again. This is the human condition. And everything that we think we know about morality or truth is filtered through our own experiences. And your experiences are different than mine. So you're going to eventually, if you and I cut the pie, you know, thin enough, we're going to come to a point where we diverge because of our experiences and the age that we are and the knowledge that we have. And, and that's what makes human beings fascinating, I think. I think the big difference between what's happening now and what was happening in the 60s is in the 60s, everybody had their own truth and it was a matter of perspective and trying to get these truths to come together to actually accomplish something. At least people believed in the truth then. It seems like now truth has just been thrown out the window completely. Well, truth is what you say long enough and loud enough. Right. That's the truth today. So I didn't live through the 60s, but I, I really can't imagine a time where there was less value placed on truth than than right now. It's funny, though, because you go back and you even, you know, you look at songs or you look at movies, you look at writing or, or articles, especially that people have written. And, and there's so many uh, similarities, though. I, I, you know, as much as I always want to think like. Uh, now has never ever happened before and then you just turn and look at even like you know the last pandemic and you realize that oh everyone did the same exact dumb stuff that we've been doing now you know it, it's always kind of the same pattern over and over and we just sort of you mean they bought up all the toilet paper then too <laughs> well you know it, it's... Wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised they gathered all the leaves together yeah right yeah. all the corn cobs <laughs> but uh you know so you think about even like protests or something like like martin luther king for example, and, and all of these protests that we now have such a sanitized vision of as we remember them fondly. And, and you don't realize when you go back and look just how many people were, were so horrendous. You have a general inkling of it, but you you know it really takes looking back and realizing that even the people that were, were marching were not all marching under the same banner. You know, this was still as, as messy and confusing and uh, powerful and interesting as it is whenever, you know, somebody protests now, like... <laughs> We look back at, at the Black Panthers and the Symbionese Liberation Army, and as you say, Jenna, there's a certain nostalgia to that. But at the time, that was truly terrifying for a lot of folks, just right. as it is today when they see the rioting and, and things going on. We don't understand it because the people that are involved in those movements, again, their truth is very far different from ours. 
Yeah, the Black Panthers, I think, have been the, one of the more interesting, uh, you know, groups to, to look back on and, and, and sort of to reevaluate. I mean, I'm, I'm white, and I remember growing up hearing about, say, uh, my parents' era, uh, you know, their friends or, or them, and, and what their perspective was on the Black Panthers, where, you know, on, there was always a line at some point where it was like, well, but, you know, it's, if somebody wants to, you know, kill all the white folks, that's not cool. You know, they should be doing things peacefully. And then you sort of come back and you, you sort of see it from the Black Panthers' perspective, and you're like, oh, my God, these guys are saying everything that, you know, I, I would be 100 percent with right now today. But does it mean that I would have, be- you know, before? Does it at mean that, that time? Yeah. Right. You know, so it, it is always really it's really fascinating to look back at this stuff. And it always is worthwhile. If we look back at Westerns with the truth of the woke generation and the next person that uses that word with me is going to get slapped. <laughs> but, it, you know, the treatment of the Indians in Western films has always been horrendous. There's just nothing that you could say to justify the way they were treated other than the ignorance of society at that time. But you look back at the real treatment of the Indians and, you know, the way they were moved off reservation to reservation and the way they were hunted down and, you know, the buffalo were completely slaughtered just for fun. And you see that this has been going on forever and ever and the movies were just a reflection of of our contempt for Native Americans at that time. Right. Right. And that's why some Westerns take a little bit of a stance to show that from time to time. Now, it gets more heavy-handed today, starting with Soldier Blue, which was really the very first recidivist Western as far as showing that the cavalry were nothing more than bloodthirsty white guys willing to kill women and children. So they're going completely in the other direction now uh, and that the Indians are all innocent and never do anything wrong in their life in that film. So there, there's nothing that matters that comes to be a moderate approach anymore except for some of the early 60s films. One of the films I really love, and it stars Woody Strode, who we're going to be talking about a little bit in The Professionals, is Sergeant Rutledge. Oh, yeah. And it's a movie about a black cavalry soldier who's accused of raping and killing a white woman. And this is a movie that just really hits things on the head and does a tremendous job without being a heavy-handed preachy movie. You are so tied up in what's going on that you forget that this is about black and white, which is what we really should do. We want to forget about black and white and we just want to be human. Well, and that one is also, uh, you know, you could categorize as a, a courtroom drama. So that's a, mm-hmm. that may be its own genre of Western. I, I don't know how many of those there might be. But 1950, we had um, Broken Arrow. I remember seeing that and thinking, you know, I saw that fairly early on. And, and that sort of gave me the impression that, that there was, you know, more of a more sympathy towards Indians in films, at least in the 50s. But that really is, it's kind of a blip. There are, there really weren't. I, I I mean, I haven't seen Soldier Blue, but it seems like between Broken Arrow and Soldier Blue, there really probably isn't a whole lot that, that really champion the, the Indians. No, because that's difficult to write. I mean, if you're a screenwriter and, and you want to just tell a, you know, a Western story, okay, we don't have to worry about the Indians. We're just going to portray them in this stereotype way because I don't want to challenge myself as a writer to deal with that. It's taking a lot more time. It's a lot harder to address these issues and and think about them. And quite frankly, a lot of audiences don't want to think about them. 
So you're not necessarily making a commercial film. And what's filmmaking about? It's about making money. Mm-hmm. I think all of the all of the '60s westerns that are sympathetic to the Native Americans that I can think of are like I don't know, like tell them Willie Boy is here or something. Yeah, <laughs> full of sure. white people in brown face anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that happened a lot. Yeah, you know. And, I mean, Jay Silverheels in, in as Tonto, he hated that. Because he had to speak in, you know, pidgin English and, you know, he was an educated guy and very classy and and he felt that that was demeaning. He was actually in a film with Gene Autry called Cowboys and Indians in which he plays a Iwo Jima vet and Medal of Honor winner who comes back to his tribal grounds and is trying to help out. And the beauty of that movie is that at the end of it, Clayton Moore is actually one of the henchmen for the bad guys. And in the end shootout, it's Jay Silverheel shooting at Clayton Moore. And I'm thinking, okay, this is just meta brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> See, Gene Autry had some good stuff. Come on. <laughs> he did. He did. You know, it just had to always end with a song. And they're good songs. Come on. I love well, it's just songs. like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's always got to end with a kiss, right? So let's not, let's not tear those things down. But the thing about a lot of the Westerns in the 60s is they were fun. And, and that, for me, is what The Professionals is. It's a fun romp of a film. And everybody that's in this movie is having a blast chewing the scenery. What's even more fun than what was going on on the screen is what was going on behind the screen with these mega A-type personalities. So, for me, that's what makes this film really special. And it also, you know, ends with one of the greatest ending lines of all time, yes. <laughs> where Ralph Bellamy calls uh, Lee Marvin. He says, you're a bastard. And Lee Marvin basically says, well, yes, that's true. But you, sir, are a self-made man. I just went, okay. Yeah, he says, <laughs> in my case, it's an line. accident at birth. But you, sir, are yeah, a self-made man. I love that. Well, Let's definitely, let's talk about The Professionals. It's 1966, directed by Richard Brooks. Yeah, I mean, star-studded cast. This is Burt Lancaster, uh, Lee Marvin, Woody Strode, Jack Palance, Claudia Cardinale is even in this. Uh, Robert Ryan. Right, Robert Ryan, Ralph Bellamy. So, uh, yeah, and, and but here you go. I'm I sorry to interrupt. No, Forgive me, please. But that's the cast that everybody looks at. That's the magnificent seven of this film. But I got to tell you that Maria Gomez, who yeah. plays Jack Palance's paramour in this film, or loyal paramour. She makes this film. She holds this film together with her performance. Her emotions in this film are just magnificently on display, and she doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, for making this film what it is. You're right, though. That's the emotional peak of this whole movie is the end of her story. She really delivers that. I mean, I don't know how much... We're going to discuss this movie pretty fully, so I guess we shouldn't worry about uh, spoilers too much. But uh... They all die in the end. So, okay, there's the spoilers. It's over with. No. (laughs) 
well, first, you say that this this movie is a fun romp in the style of Magnificent Seven, but um, there's there's a real serious edge to this too. That there's a real question of morality and who's who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and am I doing the right thing, and what kind of code do I need to live by? And it's you know a lot of ways yeah. it's, it's really up the ante it's really complicated the whole you know sort of good guys versus bad guys thing that the magnificent seven still pretty much has i mean some of these guys have a unsavory histories but it's really you know you know who the good guys are and the bad guys but this movie it's really confusing i didn't necessarily remember that about this film but it really yeah i remembered it as a fun romp but there's 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 a lot of depth to this thing there there really is you're absolutely right one of the things that that comes from goes back to what we were saying earlier about the guys that are hired by Ralph Bellamy in this film. They're mercenaries. They're gunmen for hire. This is what they do. They get hired, they get paid money, and they go out and kill people, or they go out and do whatever job they're supposed to be doing. But these guys also have a code, and that code says, you finish the job no matter what. But it also says, if the other side, the person that you've struck this bargain with, does the dirty on you, then all bets are off. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be the ones that back out of the deal. But if somebody backs out on them, then they have a whole nother path. It's King's X. Off you go. Right. Well, why don't you, uh, can you give us a, a history on the on how this movie came to be? I know it's based on a, on the novel A Mule for the Marquesa by Frank O'Rourke, which I know you're a fan of the book as well. Yes. And it, Frank O'Rourke was a guy who came out of the pulp magazines in the 40s. And he wrote uh, a lot of, of crime stuff. He wrote a lot of sports stuff. But he was really on his meter in the Western. And not only just the Western, but the heist Western. And this was something that he really initiated. And that's, in essence, what The Professionals is. It's not only a Western. It's not only a gang of mercenaries going to do a job. It's a heist film. They've mm-hmm. got to pull this off, just like a Mission Impossible would be. Yeah. You know, O'Rourke did a tremendous job with the book, and there's very little that's changed from the book to the movie. A few things. But, in essence, what you see on the screen is what comes out of the book. And here you have the fact that when Columbia first optioned the film, they were looking at Frank Sinatra and a couple of other big-name actors at that time that were thought that they were going to cast. It, it didn't work out that way, and that's a good thing because the cast that we end up with here is just dynamite, and they're all at a point in their career where they're firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. And Lee Marvin and Woody Strode were actually very close friends. There's an interesting scene in the beginning of the movie where Ralph Bellamy, who plays this millionaire railroad magnate whose wife, he believes, has been kidnapped by Mexican revolutionaries led by Jack Palance, and he wants her back. He looks at Lee Marvin and goes, how can you work with a black man? And Lee Marvin kind of looks at him questioning, what in the world are you talking about? This guy is a professional. That's all I care about. So in some ways, our bad guys are morally have the high ground, which which fascinates me. Mm hmm. Yeah. And that's the That's the only reference in the whole movie to to race. And, yeah. you know, they you know, there's sort of a, a knowing look between the, the professionals. Like, why? Why would we care? And then that's it. it, it it's never addressed again. And, and that's the beauty of this film, because there's a lot of subtleties like that. This group of men that's gathered together, 
they're all from different pasts and different paths. They've worked together possibly before, but they go their own ways and they're individuals. But all they have to do is look at each other. It's kind of like that friend of yours who you haven't seen for years and you meet up with them again and you just pick up immediately where you left off. And that's what it's like with the Burt Lancaster character and Lee Marvin's character. Lee Marvin knows he wants Burt Lancaster to, to be part of this team, and he has to go get him. And he finds him in jail for having sex with a married woman. <laughs> he has to pay his bail and get him out. But when he does, there's no mention of what Burt Lancaster did to get himself in jail. It's just, okay, buddy, let's get going. Because there's no moral judgment between the two of them. So they just blend together so well, and you have a feeling that, as silly as it is to say, these guys are a family. It comes across on the screen, especially when you know <laughs> what's going on behind the scenes when they weren't really a family. Well, I love that it also it transcends nationalities. They talk about how these guys were fighting for Mexico, weren't they? They were fighting in this revolution. Yeah. And then uh, now we have these these group of like very manly men, American Western stars. And, Who are disillusioned. You know, yeah, and they don't, they'll do whatever at this point. You know? <laughs> they'll come back, they'll do these same allies dirty, whatever, they're getting paid. But then, as you said, they have that code, so they, they managed to, to at least keep some logic there. It never feels like it doesn't make sense. This was one of the first, we were used to the term spaghetti westerns. This was one of the first Zapata westerns, which gives a, ter a term for westerns that were set either in the Mexican Re Revolution or shortly thereafter and are influenced by the Mexican Revolution. So that term Zapata westerns kind of applies to this. It kind of applies to the Magnificent Seven in many ways. And it gives a history to these men that we just accept much in the same way that we would accept the background for the guys in the Dirty Dozen. So for me, as you say, it transcends so much, and there's so much that's not said, but yet the audience understands. Right. Mm -hmm. And you've got Robert Ryan in there as kind of the, the new member of the family in a way who uh, isn't used to how these guys work. And, you know, we sort of see through his eyes how it is there's, there's so much that they don't have to say to each other. I actually feel like Robert Ryan is a, a little wasted in this movie or, you know, maybe it's just because I love him as a creep and, in, in, you know, old noirs and, and things. But um, he's, you know, he's kind of just kind of a nice guy in this movie. He's the weak sister of the group. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, the, he's the horse handler. And he's not a fighting man. Mm -hmm. So he's basically a wrangler who's just kind of been, for lack of a better term, roped into this. Yep. And he doesn't understand these guys. And he doesn't understand how to be tough. When he's going across the desert with them, he's doing nothing but complaining and you know carrying on. And the others are just kind of stoic and doing what they do. And he doesn't get that. A point in the movie when he is supposed to shoot a horse so that a bad guy doesn't get away to warn Jack Palance... He can't do it. And the other guys are pulling their hair out. What's wrong with you? And, and it, for him, his truth is, that was a horse, and I'm not going to shoot the horse. And for them, they go, yeah, it's a horse. Why did you shoot the horse? <laughs> <laughs> and it almost gets uh, Burt Lancaster killed because he won't kill it. Yeah, right. So in some ways, his role was key to this film because he's the, the antidote to how these other guys are played off. Without Robert Ryan, we just have a 
fast and furious on horses. Right. I love I love all the little moments too. I love him shooing all the horses halfway through this movie and and doing these little things like you t- you talked about this as a heist film and you get to watch them set everything up and it's really fun and it's the same way that you would in a heist movie watch them break into a, a room to then get to a safe. The same thing happens in this. You watch them scaling rocks. You're watching them making food, taking care of the horses, uh, setting up bombs, tying the wire to set the bombs. Like I, I, I kind of actually love that in this movie. It's just like a great break in between the, the violence and it makes the violence that much more poignant when it happens. Yeah, it does. You're seeing them as professionals. Right. These aren't just guys that are winging it. These guys know what their plan is. And they know in order to make it work, they've got to put the work in, the, you know, the background. You know, I was talking a little bit earlier, and I, and I didn't have the names at the, at the top of my head, but it was Gregory Pack, Frank Sinatra, and Robert Mitchum oh, wow. who were first tapped to star in this film. It would have been a totally different film. Mm-hmm. I would have liked Mitchum, though. That would have been good. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's the, the noir cowboy who's so underestimated, and he's just, he carries so many films on his own shoulders. Yeah, so here, you know, with the background on this, uh, Richard Brooks is a director. He was one of the few guys that probably could keep all these personalities in line because Burt Lancaster said that Richard Brooks never needed a megaphone to get anybody's attention on the set, even outside. (laughs) So so you know that that he was uh, yelling and screaming most of the time. But despite his reputation the only time that uh, lee marvin was actually drunk on the set was in the very first scenes where he's demonstrating a special weapon for the cavalry (laughs) the rest of the time he may go out and drink heavy every night uh, along with woody strode but he'd turn up on the set ready to go and this drove burt lancaster crazy (laughs) because lancaster was so persnickety about everything he he had his fingers in every part of the film and he would go back to his hotel at night and he'd study his lines and study his lines and (laughs) lee marvin and woody strode they get so drunk together one night that they take one of the prop bows and they actually shoot out the lights they're they're based in vegas and they shoot from their hotel window and shoot out the lights in the boy howdy cowboy that waves back and forth (laughs) that you see so many you know but the next day they turn up on the set and Lee Marvin just looks at the pages briefly with the script, and he's ready to go. And what he says to Woody Strode is, you just wait. Watch and see me destroy Burt. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would throw him off his lines, and Richard Brooks said he had to intervene one time when he thought Burt Lancaster was going to throw Lee Marvin off a cliff. <laughs> so that's what was going on at the time. Well, it really, it, it really uh, makes that running gag about Lee Marvin passing the bottle to Burt Lancaster throughout the movie really ironic, since it, you know they, they were kind of playing each other's characters, it seems. Burt Lancaster is the one who needs to be a little tipsy to, to do his job correctly, but uh, and, yeah. and Lee Marvin is uh, you know the provider. And, and, and the caretaker. It, it, despite Burt Lancaster being top billed in this film, and, and really, truly, that's, that's an ego thing, it's Lee Marvin's film. Yeah. He really plays the more or less father figure of this group. But there's the wonderful scene where Burt Lancaster and Lee Marvin are, are laying at the top of a hill just to peek over, and they're going to look down at the compound where Jack Palance is holding Claudia Cardinelli. And when they look over the edge, what do they see but Maria Gomez taking a shower, nude, 
which was a huge, huge deal at the time for movies. This was the first Western where nudity had ever been seen on the screen. And of course, she just plays this role. She has every man with their eyes on her, and uh, including the audience. That was the one, you know, it's funny because I was so excited when they introduce her. They say like, oh, that's not, that's not a woman, that's a warrior. You get the, all of this yeah. build up for her. And then the most of the movie, all you're sort of looking at her are her boobs. <laughs> it's only until like the last, you know, 20 minutes of the film, we finally really get to meet her. And she's so great. And I'm like, man, like I, you know, I wanted to see more of her face at the <laughs> beginning part. But and I agree with you. But, you know, we have to think about it in the context of the time the movie was made to give her the part that they did was a big step forward. Because the misogynism of men making movies was huge. So to have this character who really is a female warrior, she's the Wonder Woman of the West sort of thing, uh, or at least the Xena princess warrior of, of the piece, they still didn't know better than to objectify her. Oh, sure. <laughs> I feel like that's we, you know, for all of the movies that we talk about in the 60s, it's always just like having to overlook some aspect of how, how this woman was shot to see the how, how she shot oh, through. But um, I agree with you. I mean, like, it, it didn't really surprise me. But I was also like, man, there's, so, you know, we, we get more about Claudia Cardinale, who, you know, I like her in general as an actress, but she's kind of not much in this movie. She's interesting. The fact that she leaves her husband to rejoin, um, you know, her country and and rejoin her original boyfriend and kind of live in this sort of passionate love affair uh it's definitely more interesting than your your typical 60s housewife or something <laughs> and and quite frankly she does a better job than raquel welsh does in 100 rifles which is you know some to some extent yeah. a similar type of role uh, she smolders on the screen, sure, but again, that's a guy thing, and it's not an excuse. It's just an understanding for why they portrayed women in this way. It doesn't excuse right. it, but you can see that this is the type of world that we lived in then. There's a definite difference between Claudia Cardinelli and Maria Gomez, and it's clear on the screen. Maria Gomez, like, she's hardcore. She's a badass. Mm -hmm. And Claudia Cardinelli, uh, she's high maintenance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean she definitely uh, she's she's nothing much more than eye candy in this movie and and Maria Gomez really just has a lot more to to chew on that you know despite her objectification in parts is the 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 female hero of this film. And that's why I think audiences are looking at this and going can't Jack Palance, can't Rouza his character see that Maria Gomez is so much more suited to him than Claudia Cardinelli. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's definitely thinking with his little brain instead of his big brain. And uh, can I say that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> um, but in, in reality, that's, that's part of the, the, the film that is getting the audience going. Because, you know, can't you see that this woman loves you? Can't you see that she's the one that you should be uh, taking advantage of? Uh, and they kind of dislike Jack Palance's character a little bit for it. Yeah. She also, she is devoted to 
Raza. Chiquita is devoted to Raza as a leader and loves him, mm-hmm. but she also loves everybody. She has a, a, this history with uh, with Bill, Burt Lancaster, and that she just likes to have fun. She says at one point that, yeah, she'll she'll go with anybody. What's what's the difference? Well, I love and, Lancaster uh, saying, how's your love life? She says, terrific. <laughs> <laughs> that, that That's a great, consider the time period. Yeah. I mean, they're actually cutting edge at the time, let's say, you know, which isn't, you know, saying much, but it is at least saying something. And she comes across as just as professional as the rest of our characters. I mean, she plans things out. She takes a bullet and and still is still shooting. I mean, she's she's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, why shouldn't she have a terrific love life? I mean, that that would be the question, right? Why should we worry about Woody Strobe because he's black? Why should we worry about Maria Gomez having a love life? She's just one of us and has earned the right to do that, which I think is great. So you were going to talk a little bit about the thread between this and uh, and Magnificent Seven. And I was actually hoping you could go from that onto how this was uh, sort of foreshadowed the whole Wild Bunch thing that was such a sensation at the end of the 60s. Starting with the Magnificent Seven, there's the line at the end of the movie when Yul Brenner uh, turns to look at Steve McQueen and goes, only the farmers have won. The farmers always win, which are, you know, it's the meek shall inherit the earth type of line. And, and this film is in the same place that Yul Brenner is in The Magnificent Seven. They know instinctively that they're running out of time. Their time, their life is changing and they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to stop it. So they're just going to go on because it's the only choice that they have. And they don't want to die in bed. They want to go out in a blaze of glory because this is all they know and they don't want to waste away. They don't want to be reliant on somebody else because they've always been reliant on themselves. So you have that emotion in The Magnificent Seven. I love the scene where they get taken out of town and, and you know, they're told to ride away because, you know, he, the, the bad guy, the villain of the piece doesn't think they'll ever come back because they're not being paid. And bandits throw their guns down and say, Vaya con Dios, adios. And James Coburn gets off his horse and he picks up his guns and he says, nobody throws my guns in the dirt and tells me to run. He's going back to that town whether or not anybody else goes with him. And for me, that was kind of a chilling thing that I, I, I love every time I watch that film because the individuality of this guy and he is not going to be disrespected that way. And even if he dies, he's going to go back and fight for that respect. And here in The Professionals, all of them are continuing to fight for that respect. But they have to respect themselves. And that's why at the end of this film, when they make a decision to ride away and forgo you know, the reward, the financial reward of the film... They are getting a different reward. They are getting rewarded because this is who we are. This is who we stand for. And I think that thread goes through to The Wild Bunch, which is the ultimate uh, film of this macho end of the outlaw, end of the gunman history. And there you have, you know, the ultimate film where they're going to go out in a blaze of glory. Magnificent Seven and the professionals flirt with that the wild bunch goes all out and and does it mm-hmm. but you can see with peckinpah his film before the wild bunch was uh, major dundee with charlton heston 
and again he's flirting with the violence and and the the idea of of manhood macho manhood in that film and laying the groundwork for what he does in the magnificent seven and peck upon later years would admit that what he was trying to do was to desensitize and deglamorize violence and he recognized that he failed in doing that. Right. He actually glamorized the violence. And in his later films, he tried to make up for that a little bit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not immediately after uh, The Wild Bunch. Not immediately <laughs> after, because it took him a while to catch on. Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, but it re- just tracing those three movies, it really, like at the beginning of the 60s, there's the sort of innocence that they're good guys with this code. And, you know, maybe half of them will die, but they're still working for a good cause. and um, Or a cause, a, a whatever cause. that may be. Right. But, uh, you know, by the mid-60s, when the professional comes along, it's, you know, that, that idea gets really twisted. And, you know, some of the spaghetti Western influences is sort of seen there. Like, in a way, it is kind of a, you know, good, the bad, and the ugly, where... The good is is the guy who does awful things, but he's got this code. And and Burt Lancaster is kind of the ugly there because he's sort of struggling to find a code that he can believe in. So he's in a way he is kind of the the main character for that reason because we're trying to we're following him trying to believe in something again. And uh, yeah, he doesn't get as much screen time as Lee Marvin, so he doesn't feel like the main character. But after that, you know, that whole scene in the past where he doesn't let. Reza get by like he I think in a way he he does really become the the star of the film I I can see that that's a good point and you know we we really haven't talked about Jack Palance in this film because this film plays to every strength of over-the-top scenery (laughs) chewing that Jack Palance is known for and it fits I mean he just he just lets everything out in this film and and you thoroughly completely buy into it you know his connection to lee marvin and and burt lancaster and the others and you know they are two sides of really the same coin in many ways in fact they're pretty close to being on the same side of that coin and and it's a beautiful interplay uh, that between these men who as you say are really searching for something to believe in they need something to believe in in order to justify their existence and jack palance still has the cause of the revolution and the others don't. Right. They've lost that. Well, I love that how Burt Lancaster, whenever he tries to tell a story in this movie, he's always like, he like clears the way. Like he always has to get everyone's attention. All eyes have to be on him. <laughs> His voice gets this very like, you know, by the fireside chat kind of <laughs> sound to it. And he like tells you this great little weird anecdote or some strange tale. And everyone just kind of stares at him like, all right. you know, <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it's so good. But I, you know, I think it also is your, your guys are right it's like he's building up his own mythology in a way like he's just trying to find something to hang on to and then he kind of gets to the end and realizes that he wasn't really going anywhere to begin with and and you know just kind of lets it all drop again but he it keeps happening and it's this really interesting it because it's very Burt Lancaster as the actor but it's also like it, it turns into the character Bill like it turns into this whole you know it ties into his whole story I, I agree with you Jenna and I think that one of the interesting things about that that Richard Brooks did is, yeah, you know, Lee Marvin and, and Woody Strode and the rest of the group that are there, they do look kind of look at him askance, like, why are you telling us his story? But the audience knows why he's telling them that story. Right. And they mm-hmm. pick up on it. And, and that's, that's the way that this film works on many different levels. And that's truly, for me, what makes this film timeless. 
it's not a disposable Western. This is not just to shoot them up. This is a film that works on so many levels, even on subconscious levels that I don't think they were aware of at the time that in retrospect we can look at and pick out, but it's just the confluence of everything coming together. It's, it's the perfect mashup. Definitely. And there's so many good lines. You said that a lot of these were, were kind of directly from the book. They were, and, and Lee Marvin was always one for taking lines like that and shortening them down into sound bites. It was one of the th- gifts that he had as an actor, and, and he does that here. You can see a full sentence in the book comes out in four words from Lee Marvin, <laughs> and it just, but it still delivers the same impact because he was a minimalist with this stuff. You know, Lee Marvin relied so much on his physical presence. That was part of the key to his acting, and, and he would just deliver these lines in an abrupt, shortened manner. And you just fell into them. Well, the most beautiful piece of writing in the whole movie is actually delivered by Jack Palance when he gives that big speech when he's been shot in the leg. And, and uh, you know, he's talking about what went wrong with the revolution, but why he keeps going and how. Was that where Shakespeare arrived on the scene? Because yeah. <laughs> basically that's what that is. It's a Shakespearean soliloquy, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it is it paraphrasing Shakespeare? Because I wouldn't be surprised because it's really powerful. And it just sort of explains why why he needs Maria, Claudia Cardinale, and, and, you know, he's sort of become the revolution for him. And you get a little emotional there, and that's almost immediately mm. followed by Chiquita's death speech. Which, <laughs> Her sacrifice, right. yeah. And that, that really, like, you know, brings on the emotion. And so these, these two people who are, you know, they're the banditos, they're the bad guys in this movie, but they're also, yeah. like, they are the heart of this movie. They're telling you what it's all about. They're the people that we want to be like in this movie, not these, you know, ruthless mercenaries. Yeah, it's giving you the two sides of the truth here. We we start out with the truth on one side with Lee Marvin and everybody else. What do we end up with? We end up with a truth on the other side with Jack Palance and, and Maria Gomez. And we have to think about that for ourselves. How have we changed sides in this? And what today do we need to look at where we may end up changing sides? Right. Very heavy for a Western, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I sometimes think we make too much out of this as film critics, but it's fun. And, and there's a certain amount of truth to that. And, and that's what makes film so great is it, it can come up for these types of discussions, even though they're just making a movie, folks. Well, it is Richard Brooks, and he's, you know, probably best known for his Tennessee Williams adaptation. So he's, you know, he's no dummy. He's not going to make just a, just a, you know, fun shoot 'em up Western. He's, you know, if he takes on the project, it's going to have quite a few layers to it. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if he did any other Westerns in his career, but he, uh, he did a good job with this one. Well, it was, it was nominated for three Academy Awards. And one of those was for Best Adapted Screenplay for Richard Brooks. And he was the only one that was nominated for a writing award who wasn't nominated for a Best Picture award. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting there. But everything went to A Man for All Seasons that year. Right. Even though the professionals for a Western being nominated, I think it would be, you know, until True Grit before that happened again. Right. Mm. And so the question remains... Why is there no sequel? Hmm. I mean, the film was successful. The film was received critically very well. And yet there was no sequel. And part of it had to do with the actors themselves 
were not immediately available. Robert Ryan was having very much health issues, and there was just some clashes of personality between Lee Marvin and Burt Lancaster that they didn't really want to do this again. And, and so eventually it all just went by the wayside. Although, I don't know, I guess a half a dozen years ago, I heard that it had been optioned again for a remake, not a sequel, but that never came to pass, perhaps because of what happened with the remake of The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, which which I never saw. Was that a was that a disaster? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It, it was different. Purists will, you know, you'll always have fans who it's not good enough. The Man from Uncle film is a prime example of this. I thought it was a great film. I was a huge Man from Uncle fan. It was a great '60s spy film that Guy Ritchie put together. But unless they had raised Robert Vaughn from the grave and put Ducky from NCIS back in those roles, uh, there are going to be fans that are not going to be happy. The Magnificent Seven with the new cast, I thought it was just fine. It's such a durable plot, and I think they did a good job with it. Denzel Washington, what a great actor. Who wouldn't want to see him in a film like that? Mm -hmm. Well, at least it it freed up Lee Marvin to do Paint Your Wagon, so... (laughs) <laughs> oh, the less said about that, the better. Oh, I'm with you. Uh, I guess you agree with Jenna on that one. I'm a fan of the movie, but... Oh, <laughs> Clint Eastwood trying to sing. Oh, come on. Kill me now. He talks to the trees, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't sit through that again. Same. Stick a needle in my eye I, rather than make me watch that film again. Well, I'll keep it to, my, I'll, I'll keep it to myself. Keep it my own private treasure there. <laughs> there you go. You're outnumbered here. You're going to secretly watch that, uh, you know, on your Kindle in bed at night or something. <laughs> Anything else that you uh, wanted to get to? Uh, I think we've rambled pretty much around this thing, and I think that the only thing that I would say is that if you haven't seen this film and you're a fan of either westerns or action films or heist films, then I think you'll really enjoy this film, and, and it's well worth tracking down in, on a streaming service and, and taking a night out to watch it. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Yeah. For sure. Very easy to watch. It just flies by. It's so absorbing. If you're even, you know, even if you're not uh, the biggest Western fan, this could this movie could make you one. Yeah, it it transcends the traditional Western uh, that you think of when when Westerns are mentioned. I I think it works in so many different ways. So thank you for having me on and let me talk about this because it's one of my favorite films. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us tonight. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Paul. And, And everyone needs to go and check out Six Gun Justice which is uh, fantastic. And also, how about paulbishopbooks.com? Absolutely. You can find uh, find me there with uh, with my own writings. I, I write a lot of cop stuff and, and other series. So uh, my latest book is called Lie Catchers. And it is everything that I know about interrogations within a fictional setting. So everything that occurs in that book, I've done at one time or another for better or worse. I got to ask you, being with the LAPD for so long and you still you still enjoyed coming to uh, crime fiction in your downtime? I, I did. It was just, uh, I was so lucky. I got to do the two careers I've loved most simultaneously. And, and, and that was, you know, putting villains in jail and getting putting words on paper and getting published. Uh, so I, I've been very, very fortunate. I spent, of my 35 years, I spent over 25 years working sex crimes. And I spent 20 of those years running a unit with 30 detectives that covered about 25% of the city. Uh, so that was really the world that I lived in, and it just kind of flowed into all other other parts of, of my life in many ways. Hmm. Well. It was cathartic for me to write about crime fiction on the page, because 
crime and true life uh, is rarely pleasant and is rarely uh, tied up uh, in a nice, neat package. Right. And you can do that in fiction. And that was was cathartic in its ways to address the things that bothered me, the things I'd seen, and then to be able to wrap them up in, in a in a positive manner with a big red bow. Right. And you know you know what the truth is when you've you know you've created the story yourself. You don't have to live with this uh, you know nagging nagging worry that oh you know maybe maybe I didn't get the full story. Real life is much too messy. Oh, yeah. Real life is messy. Yeah. That's for sure. And I guess we better get back to our messy real life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get on our horses here. and all Yeah, right. right into the sunset. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.